Welcome to Veza Talks podcast. My name is Mario Milanovic, and today it's a great pleasure to welcome back John Chapelier. Thanks for being back. Oh, Mario, thank you very much for having me back, and I, <laughs> I appreciate your patience going through all the joyful technology glitches that can come up, even though we're probably both on these kinds of events a couple times a week, but it always seems to to be when you need it right away. We had a really good podcast last time, and it was a really, really good response to it, and uh, a lot of uh, clips and reels on social media uh, and everything, so that was really cool. So we didn't really finish off uh, everything we wanted to talk about. We could probably talk for hours on end. However... Uh, one thing that I uh, want to talk to you about is about your new book that you wrote. So uh, let's uh, dive into that and you can tell our viewers the name and a little bit uh, of an introduction and then we can uh, talk about some uh, points if you don't mind. No, no, I, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Uh, the two book, it's actually a new book is, is um, a, a more in-depth explanation of the primary book, which the new book is called People Come First. And okay. it talks about this new, the new business model, where, uh, which is basically the same business model I've been using since the 80s, but people still don't seem to get it, which is you focus on your people, the business will take care of itself. But if you focus on the business, the people will matriculate directly out the door. The problem is with people who are good is they have choices and they will leave if they're not feeling as if they're being treated effectively. And the ones who don't have choices will stay. So eventually what you'll end up with is a whole bunch of employees that you just as soon not have because all the good ones have already left. Um, so we have to really learn that it is it is people, not profits. And, and a good example of this going on right now is uh, the way in which you see large companies, very profitable companies, laying off a lot of people where they may or may not. I mean, I don't look at their balance sheets, but unless they're doing poorly, and I'm not assuming that people like Amazon or or uh, other companies that I'm seeing out there right now, Google, that kind of thing, um, should be making enough because what happens is when that happens – the, the other people begin to feel very concerned about, am I next? Am I right. next? Exactly. And I guess I guarantee you a person who wonders whether they're next is not working at a per <laughs> the level that a person who doesn't worry about that would be working. So the, the People Come First is the book that has probably only been out about two months, but it was based on the original book, which is The Daily Six. The Daily Six came out in 2006 and I think it was just a little ahead of its time because the concepts of, of emotional connection uh, with leadership, leadership learning how to create an emotional connection um, with their workers was something that people, I'm not doing that. That's way too complicated. And it, it really is. It's much more, it takes a lot more responsibility and focus to be able to be emotionally connected. The idea that right. they talk about now is diversity, inclusion, and equity. Those are all based on emotional connections that you can work on to make with the people that you work with. But right. <laughs> it takes a lot more work to do that than it is just to be a boss, just to tell people what to do and then go back and close your door and sit in your office. I mean, right. It appears he, that, uh, you know, uh, Elon Musk is kind of on the forefront of this. And, you know, it's like uh, he realized that 80% of the Twitter uh, employees were not needed. In other words, mm. um, you know, he's cutting the fat. And, you know, that's not something that I think companies did in a long time. 
uh, add uh, AI to the whole uh, you know, uh, equation and you're starting to look at companies uh, or at least the leadership is looking at, these, at their companies and looking and saying, wait a second, you know, we've had this, all these uh, inclusion uh, mandates and everything else and uh, our, you know, our ability to, uh, you know, uh, produce whatever we're producing in terms of quality has fallen. Why? Because <clears throat> as you get bigger and fatter, you obviously uh, lose some uh, resilience and uh, you're not able to move yeah. as quickly. And so I think the fact that Amazon is and all the other ones are laying people off is really a function of, you know, somebody is actually looking at, uh, you know, the, high, the people that are working there and what they're actually doing, right? Because especially with COVID-19, and everything. A lot of people went, you know, home and, you know, I mean, I know <laughs> so many people that just basically worked for a couple hours a day, right? You know, they would get up at, you know, sta stand up call 9am and then go back to bed until 11 and all that. So I think there's a lot of that that was happening. Uh, but I do agree with you uh, in an organization where you think you're next, you're basically not going to perform at the right. highest level. So <clears throat> uh, what do you think is the right approach? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously there's a balance and the balance is, you know, for myself, anytime I had employees, I always really wanted to take care of them and make sure that they're happy and uh, they're, they're taken care of. However, at some point you lose uh, the reins, so to speak, because you're either growing too quick or you don't have the time right. to spend and maximize uh, each employee's um, ability to work at, at, a, at, a, at a peak, right? So what, what are some of the... Uh, things that you, I imagine, have uh, probably written about in this book? Well, the things that are dealt with in the Daily Six were created primarily to sort of help executives learn that there's an emotional balance that helps keep us centered and balanced in here, which allows us to show up on phone calls and in meetings and in department head, you know, exchanges where if you're centered and balanced in here, what comes out of your mouth doesn't tend to get you in more trouble <laughs> than you had before you started talking. Right. So uh, I've taught executives to do this. Just take five seconds or 10 seconds before you pick up a telephone. How would you like to be perceived on the phone call? How would you like to be perceived in the meeting? Not what do you want to say, but how would you like people to perceive you as an irrational, crazy person or as somebody who really understands what the issues are and is helping to work towards a solution versus just demeaning or demoralizing the staff sitting at the table? And while I do agree that as organizations get bigger, I mean, I had an organization that grew from two people to 500 people. Um, uh, over a period of probably five or six years. And then we stayed at about that for a couple of years and then we cut back some. Um, what I've learned over time is that there are two things. One is you're, I wasn't hiring correctly. I was just hiring to fill a spot. And what happens is that means that the person may or may not be capable of doing the job. I'm just trying to, we just need another, whatever it is, another accountant, get me another driver, sure. get me another, you know? And so what happens then is if you don't take the time it takes to get the right person, you tend to end up 
you well, you hired that person and they didn't quite do everything. So you have to go hire another person to finish the job. And so what you've done is you've you've not had a you've not had a fat problem, you've had a bad hiring problem. And so what we do is we tend to look at the easiest solution, which is just hire another person, versus going back and saying, Why do we need another person? Why? And so that's sort of the the issue that I never dealt with, which was just what do we need? Fix it. Versus why do we need it? fix it. Um, I'll give you a great example. We have, at least in my humble opinion, it's a great example. <laughs> um, what we, we had at one point, I had a, a large a distribution company and we were having troubles with the fact that we noticed that the drivers were spending more time picking up materials that were incorrect uh, and we had, you know, 40,000 SKUs. So there were lots of times where things were, you know, mispicked or whatever the problem might be. So returns were normal. This happened to be something where the returns were going through the roof and we couldn't figure out why. And so my warehouse distribution people came and said, we need to get five more trucks and five more drivers, or we're not going to be able to make our commitment to the customer, which is to deliver the next day. And of course, I'm sitting, you know, nowhere near the warehouse distribution center. So I'm like, okay, well, then let's consider that. But why don't we take a look at why this is happening instead of what's happening? And so when we took a look at why is it happening, we realized that we are putting so much pressure on the pickers and packers to put the orders in boxes. I mean, we had a very similar but much smaller version of what Amazon does. We had guys roaming the floors all the time, picking items and putting them in boxes and getting them ready to be shipped out but we had so much pressure on them that they were picking the wrong items. Um, and it was a much less sophisticated com uh, computer-driven warehousing system than they have today. I mean, this was in the mid eighties. So it was really what was written on the paper and what was written on the shelf had to match. And so they were picking, they were just picking so fast to keep the quotas up that they were making mistakes. And right. so instead of hiring five drivers and five trucks, which was very expensive, we hired three more pickers and we told them to slow down, slow down, don't feed the, and we changed their uh, quotas from being driven to how many do you pick as to how many returns does your picking create? Right. And all of a sudden the returns went away immediately because we were rewarding on the right things. We hired the right people, not the wrong people, because if we had had five more trucks and five more drivers, there would have been the same amount of returns coming back. It just would have been spread out over five more trucks. So it's a matter of identifying what the issue is. And that's one of the reasons why I say people come first. And the Daily Six talks about making sure that you don't carry the resentment. I had to work with the warehousing management who were very upset about the pickers and packers. But it wasn't because they were inadequate or poorly trained. It was that we had set an ex expectation on them that was unrealistic. So if you want to talk about something that motivates or demotivates people, the one thing that has consistently for years and years motivated people more than not is clear achievable goals, not unachievable goals. It's, a, it's something that's out here that causes you to stretch, but it is reachable. If it's right. constantly not reachable, <laughs> all you're doing right. is creating frustration. So, so what do you say to, um, you know, I mean, the people come first, which I agree. What do you say to the AI robot uh, <laughs> <laughs> about people come first? And in other words, you know, I'll give you an example in my real life. And that is, you know, I remember my CTO came to me and said, listen, uh, you know, we're doing these crazy volumes right now. Uh, and uh, in the digital space, and uh, we need to hire people. And I said to him, I said, okay, 
uh, is it possible not to hire these people and replace them with, you know, uh, CPUs? And yeah. he, his immediate uh, answer was, no, 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 we can't, we can't. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you two days. And uh, how many people do we need to hire? Four? Okay. Uh, I'll give you two days. If you can figure it out, I will uh, increase your salary by 50%. And he came back in one day and he what said, yeah, can be done. Uh, we're going to have to get uh, 27 more CPUs and, uh, and thanks for the raise. And I said, well done. So uh, what yeah. do you say to the AI rob robot <laughs> that basically <laughs> doesn't care about right. the people and cares right. about the efficiency of the company, which right. in itself, the company itself should really care about the company. Uh, however, uh, you know, there's this line of, uh, well, we have employees and we should, we should take care of them, right? What, what, what do you say to the robot? <laughs> well, well, first of all, I, I can't say much to the robot because I actually, <laughs> I enjoy, I've picked a few things with, with my chat bot and, you know, things like, well, tell, write me a short post about love and forgiveness. And 30 seconds later, this really nice 300-word post just comes rolling out of the computer. And I have a very hard time saying, well, that doesn't look like a human wrote it because it does look like a human wrote it. It, right. it actually looks like I wrote it. So, right. you know, the, the, the thing is, it's not so much the people or the not people. I mean, these are people you did not hire, you did not mistreat, and you, and you did not cause them to be demoralized and want to quit. These are people that right. you never hired. So it's sure. to me, the people the, the people that would have then come first in that scenario would be the guy you gave the raise to. That right. would be the person. At right. that point, that's the person that needs to come first because he'll be the one connecting to your clients, connecting through right. the AI robot. So it's it's always a matter of people feel comfortable buying from and working with people they feel comfortable with. And Absolutely. that's beginning to move into the digital realm. There's no doubt about it, but somewhere along the line, and hopefully, you know, I won't be working a whole lot longer, but hopefully before I retire, I would imagine that many of, you know, the guy who bought those CPUs for you will also be replaced by an AI and you will be, you know, typing into your chatbot some sort of find me 12 more chatbots that can take care of my stuff and it'll be fixed by the next day, which is a frightening concept because sure. I don't know what all the people are going to do with all this free time. It's um, we don't have, at least in the U.S., we don't have social systems which will support people who get laid off because they got replaced with technology. Um so I don't know if we're going to have a huge unemployment issue associated with this or or what it may bring. But I do know that there's always going to be somebody, at least I cannot imagine an organization running exclusively on uh, uh, electronics unless you go back to the matrix. Um, it, it, there's going to be a human in there somewhere. Um, and and so what we need to make sure is that the, there's a set of values that get input or guided by the humans that get input and guided by the AI process too. Right. So that there's a value associated with what they're doing. And there's a, there's a sense of, um, as Covey used to put it, true North principles that just never get violated. This right. is the way in which we want to behave. These are our, this is the model that we want to follow. And as long as that's being, ha as long as that's happening, I think that, 
I think that if you have less humans, that's okay. It's just they need to be respected and appreciated because then they will guide your AI to right. better perform. So I have a question for you. So uh, just came up to me. So one of the challenges that I think um, U.S. companies have and probably uh, Western companies is the whole, uh, call it the Vogue uh, uh, movement. And, you know, it feels... You know, and uh, for us, our company, we know we're international, and so we see the differences in, in people and the ability to talk to people, what I consider a normal way. And then uh, the challenges that these companies in the U.S. have with, you know, um, this uh, inability to communicate the way that I guess we used to communicate, and almost like walking on eggshells, right? <clears throat> Can you speak about your experience on that? Because it's a really interesting concept for me, especially because... Uh, you know, the people that we hire, we hire uh, out, of out of Eastern Europe and, uh, you know, uh, some people in Asia and Middle East and all that. So can you speak a little bit about that in particular and how that handicaps uh, the, the, either the entrepreneur or the owner or HR? Sure. Um, I guess for me, I grew up in Washington, D.C., which is a a very big mixing pot of race, creed, color, national origin, all sorts of things. I mean, yep. there was a huge influx of, of foreign, uh, or not really foreign, but I mean, people from different countries sure. uh, because of all the embassies and all the people that came with the embassies and all the newspapers that were head, were headquartered in Washington and all these other things. So I kind of grew up with this woke culture, except for the fact that I was white and I was living even unconsciously in primarily a white area. I went to primarily white luncheons. I went to, I had a primarily white country club because it was just the way it was. I mean, it wasn't that I really noticed it one way or the other. Sure. Um, and so, but I went through a leadership program in Washington way back in the eighties. And I was born and raised in the city of Washington, grew up in the city about 12 blocks from the Capitol. And yep. I was never exposed to upper middle class, middle class, upper middle class people of racial diversity or, or sexual orientation. I did not have a lot of gay friends. I had no lesbian friends. I had no really close black friends or, uh, or even Asian friends or anything else really outside of you know, a, an old white guy. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, I was the perfect <laughs> example of, of the wasp, you know, it was, but it wasn't until uh, I got to know these people over a one year long program that I realized I've really been off base on this. And I think this is what happens with this woke, not woke kind of thing. It's um, I remember my father, my father was a uh, non-denominational bigot. I mean, he didn't like anybody. <laughs> you know, it didn't, it didn't matter for you. It'd be, well, he's Eastern European. I can't deal with those. You know, sure. it would have been, it wouldn't matter if you're white, if you were white, then it was, there's something else that he doesn't like. Or if you're black, there's something, you know. So, so what happened that I finally noticed when I was a young teenager was that he was, he was like this, except for the people that he knew. He, he was very leery of Jewish people, but except for his lawyer and the three or four friends that he had that were Jewish, they were great people. But all the people he didn't know, there was a problem. Same thing sure. with 
with um, African-American people, the five or six people that he worked with or knew with, they were just fantastic, you know, salt of the earth, except for all these other people that I really don't know. And it wasn't until I came to the realization that he loved all the people that he knew and he just didn't love the people that he didn't know. So my issue with this today is that most of the problems are coming from a, a level of a lack of understanding. And it's, it's a very difficult thing for people who have never really experienced this kind of discrimination to understand what it feels like. It's like me trying to, I can imagine what it feels like to have a child, but I can't tell you I understand what it feels like to have a child because I've never had a child. You know, I've never gone through the process of birth. So when I listen to a woman describe the process of birth, I don't discount it. I appreciate it and I validate it because that's that's somebody who's actually experienced it telling me how it feels. For me to go, well, that's just not realistic. I don't. I think you're overblowing the whole thing. Nobody would question me doing that, but yet they question they question um, people of different races and different nationalities or different sexual orientations about the issues that they're struggling with. So my thinking is what we need, and again, this is the same thing with emotional connection with leadership. Leadership needs to understand if you want to have people who are, again, working for you or working with you or people that you're trying to get to do volunteer work together, working together in a, in a way in which is successful and productive, that you need to be able to understand, at least on some level, the people that you're connecting with. What are they struggling with? Not, not, how, what, not what is my perspective of their problems. That's not right. a realistic expectation. What okay. can I, or how many times have I asked them, what issues are you dealing with that I might be able to help you find a way to get from here to there more effectively? Right. So That's a really good me, answer. I like it. I, it's it's this, mostly a matter of being willing to expose yourself honestly to your own discrimination, whether or not it's whether or not you meant to do it or didn't mean to do it doesn't really matter. It matters sure. that you wait, work hard enough to begin to understand the process from the other person's point of view. Right, got it. So um, what would you say to Steve Jobs if he was sitting here uh, <laughs> who notoriously, <laughs> you like that, huh? Who notoriously was known to be an a-hole and basically didn't care about people at all, and yet he took a company from basically bankruptcy to the biggest company in the world. So like... What do you think you could tell him and how would you be able to change his mind if in fact that's something that you that you would want to do? <laughs> well, um, no, <laughs> I wouldn't want to change his mind. <laughs> the, the there are th some things. I mean, I agree. But the, the problem is that you've picked a, a, a unique situation. It would be the same thing about... Um, uh, Musk, you were talking about Musk earlier. I mean, yeah, let me sit down with Musk and change his mind about all this other stuff about Twitter and all the other things. That's not going to happen because these people are geniuses on one level, which causes them to be socially disconnected on another level. Because, right. and I can assure you that when I was younger and running companies, there was a level of omnipotence that I felt uh, that had to do with my intellect, my success, and the more success you have, the more intellect you think you have. Right. And so I know a lot of very wealthy people who are just, just don't get it. And they don't get it because they don't want to get it. It's, right. you know, it's like, why do I need to listen to this? I have managed to succeed in all these other realms of the world. 
and you're there nagging on me about whether I should say, you know, call them her or him or they or them, because it's it's just an odd situation. Now, you give me two or three people down in Apple, I could probably talk to them. Right. So who or, would you think, who would be your uh, demographic for this book? Who is the... Uh, the perfect reader, you think? Well, for the Daily Six, the perfect reader is the person that was like me, because I, that's when I wrote. I wrote the book about twenty years after I sold my largest company, and about ten years after I sold my last company. Um, and it was really for this entrepreneurial, fast growth um, person that was mistaking success with significance. You know, they were very successful, but the kids just didn't really like them too much because right. they never saw them. And the wife was like, yeah, well, maybe we'll just get a divorce because I can't deal with much more of this. Because that's what happened to me. I ended up divorced. My kids didn't like me. I was very successful. I was on every A-list invitation in the city of Washington. But I was living in a hotel, and my personal life was in totally in the dumper. But it, I looked good. You know, I had a nice suit, a great-looking thing. So, you know, the idea is that if you find yourself feeling as if you're doing the best you can, but you're constantly pushing a rock up a hill that keeps rolling back down, sort of the Sisyphus syndrome, you know, then maybe you need to find a different way. Because what happened with me was I got what I refer to as a gift of devastation. And a gift of devastation is those horrible things that happen to you, but eventually push good change into your life. A heart attack pushes exercise and good diet. You know, yep. bankruptcy pushes financial management effectively. Divorce creates a really good parent every other weekend. But what I tell people is that it doesn't require that pain or those traumas to make those changes. You can be a good parent before you get a divorce. It's just that humans have a very hard time making changes unless there's pain associated with it. So, you know, if you've if you've gone through this and you may have gone through this yourself, I mean, you've you end up with a company sort of crashing and burning. And so you've changed it when you start another company, you change the way you ran it or you change the model in which you built it. Um, if you get remarried, you become a different kind of husband or a different kind of parent and you change the way in which you work. If you were sort of alienating your people before and that's caused a huge rift in your life, then you find yourself being different or you find yourself being willing to learn how to be different. That was what it was for me. It was sort of this shell of hubris that was all around me. You know, it was all about me that kind of got cracked a little bit and allowed a little humility to come in. And I began to realize that the, the you know, the earth does not revolve around me. It, just because I'm very successful and there's money involved and all these other things, it's, uh, the world does not revolve around me. You know, sure. there are people out there and we say things like, well, I'm just really lucky, you know, and the thing is, no, not really. There are a lot of people out here who are doing the same thing you're doing, but not as successful. Or I just really worked hard, you know, and I know people who are working three jobs right now, but they're not driving around in a new Porsche. You know, it's just so what is it? It's right time, right place, a lot of luck. And in many cases, right right race, right nationality, right, those kinds of things all sort of fit together to have put this package together to allow me to be successful, which is why gratitude is a big part of, big part of the Daily Six and a big component of, of People Come First is learning to be grateful instead of proud. Um, one of the exercises I put people through in a workshop is list the top five things that you're proud of 
and then go back and change the word proud to the word grateful. And you'll find yourself feeling differently about being proud to have kids versus being grateful to have kids or being proud of my marriage, being grateful to be married or proud of my job or being grateful for my job. The way in which we change the way we look at things allows us to change the way that we appreciate things. And and I and I truly do not believe that you appreciate the things that you work hard for. I mean, you, many people do, but I know I worked very hard for 25 or 30 years and nothing that I did had much appreciation. All I wanted was whatever came next. There wasn't any time here to spend time appreciating this. I was always busy looking, you know, where are we going next? How much bigger can I be? Sure. So I, lived, I wasn't living a life. I was living a marketing plan. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it Absolutely. had 20% bigger every year. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, the only reason we do anything, and that's anything, whether it's a new car, a new job, pushing more money, new women, is to feel better. That's the only reason we do anything like that. And, you know, I always uh, advise my uh, clients that I deal with is, that, well, why don't you just feel better now? And then everything else is a bonus, right? <laughs> right. And they will, right. well, uh, that's a good point. Exactly. So that goes back to words appreciation. And that goes to uh, appreciating the moment and living mm -hmm. in the moment and mm -hmm. allowing things to happen in your life because so many times we want to control things and we think we can control them and at the end of the day there's absolutely nothing you can control except the way you feel so you know it's really it's really interesting to see uh you know people hustling wanting to make millions and millions and then when they make the millions they want to make more million it never ends so it's an ego right. uh, ploy right. that uh for some reason doesn't hit you until uh you really get uh you know uh uh, pinned by nice. buildings, you know, and you have your, right. uh, you know, major uh, catastrophe in your life, right? And then you reevaluate right. it and, and then you forget about it a couple of years later, right? So it's, uh, yeah, it's super <laughs> important to uh, be grateful. Uh, and a lot of times being grateful is almost associated in a religious sense. And so people don't like it, I suppose. And I think that being great, and you know, when you talk about families, maybe different, right? I'm grateful for my mom, my dad, I'm grateful for my kids, I'm grateful for something, mm -hmm. right? And so, as soon as you say that, it changes the way you feel. It's amazing, right. isn't it? Yes, it is. It really, it really is. I mean, that's that's the concepts in the daily six. There, each one of those is something that will lead you. You talked about I want to feel better, and or I want to be happy. You know, that was sort of my my thing was happy. Let me feel happy. And I did so many successful things, but they didn't connect me to happiness because right. there was always another hurdle. You know, it was that you know as soon as I get this done, then I can work on that. And as soon as this happens, then I can work on that. And so. The, the phrase I've coined is stop waiting for your life to get perfect, to be happy. And then the other thing is, is that, okay, well, now I'm willing to do that. But how do I, what does that mean? What is how, you know, what is that? So the daily six was willing. You had to be willing to start and then spend some daily quiet time to set your heart and your might and your mind in the right direction so that, you know, you've created a path for the day, be focused to service uh, with others, so focusing on the needs and successes of others, not just my own, be practicing love and forgiveness, which is just understanding others, other people's needs and treating them as important as my own, not more important and not less important, just as important, being forgiving so you're not carrying around a lot of judgment and anger from day to day to day, gratitude for all things at all times, and take action, 
uh, on each of those components because the rest of them, if you don't take any action, it's just a it's just a mental action activity that you go through thinking you're really getting a lot of things done. But right. it's funny how the one thing that I've learned with this particular step is that a lot of times I look at executives and they go, this is the instruction book. This is this is what I've been looking for is, okay, what do I do tomorrow when I wake up? Well, you think about what you're going to be willing to work on today. You're going to work on being a little more loving and work on uh, a little meditation or mindfulness or gratitude or what are you going to work on? It doesn't have to be something you incorporate all of this stuff together all the time. Just focus on moving yourself a little forward. Small steps, small changes create dramatic results. So Let's get a small step started tomorrow. Absolutely. Well, that's amazing. So as you know, I always ask uh, my guests about uh, being in my shoes and uh, not having asked a question. What would that question be? I think last time you asked uh, me whether you're happy, I believe. And uh, mm. so is there a question that you felt I didn't ask you? Um, what, what am I doing today? to maintain that level of happiness and appreciation and gratitude. Okay, cool. And um, for me, <laughs> it's turned out to be a very weird thing, um, which is, I mean, we've talked enough times, you know that that's not so unusual if it's a weird thing and it happens to me. I like I've weird. started, <laughs> I've got, I live in a very nice neighborhood where everybody takes care of their yard and everything is trimmed up nicely. But I have a very old man who lives next door who's almost completely disabled and really can't afford any yard help or yard care. And a couple that lives right across the street from a brother and a sister who are really struggling just to make ends meet. And so what I've done over the last few weeks is I've started mowing their lawns. I have a, a riding mower, and so I just drive it over there and go around and mow the lawns. And <laughs> I pay somebody to mow my lawn, and I'm mowing somebody else's lawn. This is the, cra <laughs> this is the craziest thing. I mean, people, I'm the only guy that mows lawns that doesn't that pays to have somebody mow mine. So, <laughs> but but I get a tremendous sense of satisfaction out of Absolutely. seeing the satisfaction. The, the woman across the street, the brother and the sister, she came over the other day and talked to Susan, my wife, and said, you know, we need to be able to, do, what can we do for John? I mean, and she said, please don't worry about that, because that just gives him a sense of, of value in being able to help you. You know, Absolutely. it makes him, he's getting a great deal of value out of this helping, you know, and and so it's for me, it's silly little things like mow a lawn or hold a door or push sure. a shopping cart back or Something else, it's some small thing that I can do to sort of make a little dent in the day that shows that I was here. Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, that's really, really amazing uh, uh, advice. Um, tell the, uh, everybody about uh, the book name again and where they can uh, buy it. The book is, there's, there are two books. One is The Daily Six and the other is People Come First. And The Daily Six and People Come First are both available on Amazon. Um, there's also another, there's another uh, channel called Scribble, S-C-R-I-B-L. And okay. Scribble has an ebook and an audio book. So I've had a very hard time getting, <laughs> getting Amazon to be willing to take somebody else's version of my audio book. They're not real big on that. If you want an audio book, it's got to go through Audible. So they're, right. it's a little hard to get them to do that. But uh, Scribble is a great place, especially if you're an author. If you're an author, it's a really good place to go because you get about eighty percent of the sales prop. So it's oh, amazing! Well, it's that's great. Much, 
much better deal than Amazon. No, well, Great, excellent. Say. Well, thank you again for your time. This was wonderful, and we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Thank you, Mario. It's wonderful to see you again. Take care. Thank you.